Well, today we begin chapter 4 of the book of Daniel. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar has had another dream. The interesting thing about it, it's 30 years later. My, how time flies in the Bible. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the high tree. That's what this chapter is about. Today we're going to look at the first 18 verses where Nebuchadnezzar narrates his vision to Daniel. So let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word today. As someone had mentioned earlier before the service, Daniel is one of their favorite books. And Lord, it is a great book of the Bible to study, especially after we've just finished the book of Revelation. So we ask you to bless this time in your word today that we would continue to learn, Lord, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and become even more prepared for the days and the times in which we are living. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1. I'm not going to read the whole passage like I normally do to save some time here and just cut through. So verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king. This is him giving a decree to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. And so he, as we know, his, the Babylonian empire was massive and included many peoples, nations, and languages the closest thing I can think of in recent history, for better or for worse, would be the Soviet Union. Boy, they swallowed up most of Europe, a large part of it anyway, and they had different countries, different people groups, different ethnicities, different languages. And of course, the British Empire, which uh, really began to deteriorate after World War I, World War II. At one time, they had control of India, other large areas. So Nebuchadnezzar is addressing all the people within his empire. It's a public decree or a state paper of Nebuchadnezzar. And these verses that we're about to read are a, a royal proclamation by Nebuchadnezzar concerning the God of Israel in which the king celebrated what God had done for him and praised him for his power and universal dominion. Because as you may recall, Previously, Daniel had been able to tell him his first dream, or first recorded dream anyway, and also the interpretation. And then, of course, most recently, we studied the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace. And once again, God manifests himself very dynamically, very powerfully before Nebuchadnezzar. So here he goes, verse 2. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Wow. This sounds a lot like some of the other biblical writers. It sounds like he might be a true born-again convert to Judaism, if you will. You could probably write a worship song with the lyrics that he has just given forth. But we'll see what's really going on here in a moment. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. Or the NIV says it like this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. And see, to the world, that might sound great. Contented and prosperous, but... 
It's actually kind of a warning sign. Nebuchadnezzar was fat and sassy. His contentment came from self-satisfaction with his powerful position and his enormous wealth. This is usually not a good sign. As a matter of fact, that was exactly the condition that King David was in when he got in trouble with Bathsheba. Contented and prosperous. We read, you know, in the stories of David, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, how David had conquered his enemies on every side, and he was just content there in his palace. And then he happened to look out over the balcony and see a ravishing young woman bathing, which normally when you bathe, you're not wearing anything, right? And that got David in some big trouble. So here's Nebuchadnezzar in a similar condition. Philippians 4.12, I love the words of Paul here. He says, I know what it is to be in need. Certainly Paul had those times when he was in need, traveling all around, doing his missionary work, getting in trouble everywhere he went, getting thrown in jail, getting stoned, beaten. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. And yeah, there were those times when the local uh, body of believers would take care of him, provide for him, feed him, and so forth. And then he'd be out traveling around, and sometimes it wasn't so good. So he says, I've, I've experienced the whole gamut. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. That's what we read about Nebuchadnezzar here. He was content and prosperous. But Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether you're prosperous or not. Whether things are going good or they're not going so good. Whether well-fed or hungry. Whether living in plenty or in want. And so Paul, as a dedicated, committed follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, an apostle, called personally by Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul had learned how to be content regardless of his circumstances. So often we are impacted by our circumstances, aren't we? And you've heard me say this before, but you know, you ask a friend or a family member or some coworker, hey, how's it going? Oh, not too bad under the circumstances. And then I will always say, well, what are you doing under there? Right? In Christ Jesus, the Bible says we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So how could we possibly be under the circumstances? But sometimes we let ourselves get there, don't we? Paul knew how to conquer that. He learned the secret. And that secret, of course, was to be totally hidden, hide yourself in Jesus Christ. I no longer live, Paul wrote, but Christ lives in me. I've said this before, too. You know, the Bible teaches us that we're to die to self to live as Christ, to die as gain. But Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And you know, a dead person has no issues with contentment. A dead person has no issues with, what about my rights? What about my needs? When you're dead, you don't have any rights or any needs. Your life is hidden in Christ. He lives in you. All right, 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. Paul again writing, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. 
The world's idea of great gain is to get more stuff, right? More money, more possessions, a better position in your place of work, climbing the corporate ladder, or as so many in the political world have sought after power and influence and money. I don't think our founding fathers ever intended for people to get rich by becoming a politician. In fact, the founding fathers were successful private businessmen, farmers, so forth, publishers. Benjamin Franklin was a publisher and a writer and so forth. They went into office and many times sacrificed the fortunes that they had already amassed in order to serve our country. Today it's just the opposite. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. In spite of that truth, it's crazy, one of these new modern spins on things says, he who dies with the most toys wins. Have you heard that one? Really? You don't get to take any of those toys with you. Right? Just another twisted philosophy of men. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. How many of us here today can say that? <laughs> Honestly. Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content as long as we can upgrade the 55-inch flat screen to a 65 or a 70 or, right? Then we shall be content. Except you won't be content because then you're going to want an 80-inch flat screen. It's like my son-in-law recently upgraded his. The thing is massive. When you watch TV, the people are life-sized. <laughs> it's a little scary, really. Especially when you're watching football and they're coming right at the screen, you know? Gonna have to start wearing my helmet and stuff just to watch. Contentment. So Nebuchadnezzar's contentment did not come from his relationship with God, although it appears to be blossoming, doesn't it? But again, keep in mind, this is over a 30 year period. Finally, Hebrews 13 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. What is covetousness? It's wanting what somebody else has. Being envious, being jealous of what they have, feeling like they don't really deserve it, but you do. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, God the Father, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And here's the ring-a-ding daddy. And it really applies to the times that we're in now. 1 Thessalonians 5.3 For when they shall say peace and safety or contentment and prosperity, if you will, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. This is speaking about uh, the outpouring of God's wrath during the end times tribulation. Now some people read this verse and they say, well, 
we must not be that close to the Lord's return then because it certainly doesn't look like peace and safety out there, does it? There's turmoil, there's chaos, there's wars and rumors of wars and so forth, which is also what Jesus said it would be like in the last days. And I had an interesting thought on the way here. I was thinking about this verse in particular and the state of the world as it is right now. And I thought, what, what could happen that would suddenly transform the landscape from the landscape that we now see into one where people are saying peace and safety? Here's some food for thought. You know what came to my mind? The removal of all the Christians. Because for the largest part of the world, we're the problem. We're the fly in the ointment, if you will. We're the number one irritant for all those who don't believe in God, those who hate God, those who reject God, or worship a different God. The world is in the process of coming together. Even the Pope has promoted for years now, the various popes over the last few years, coming together with the Hindus, the Muslims, you name it, the Buddhists, coming together. The Bible clearly predicts, Revelation 13 in particular, that we will have during the tribulation a one world religion. And guess which part of that group will be excluded? Christians. Because we believe the words of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man or woman comes to the Father except through me. So there's no room within our faith, you know, for inclusion, if you will, for embracing other belief systems. But the one world religion of the tribulation will be exactly that, an amalgamation, a blending of all faiths into one demonic, satanic belief system which will ultimately result in the worship of the Antichrist. So in thinking about this, I thought, what would suddenly make the world feel very peaceful and safe? Getting rid of all the Christians. Make sense? What a sigh of relief. All those right-wing, bigoted, fundamentalist, white supremacist, Bible-bashing homophobes are gone! If there was a God, I would praise him! Think about that. And that's good news for us. That means we have to be taken out of the way. And I'm all for it. Beam me up, Jesus. <laughs> and they can have their pseudo-fake. Well, we already have fake news. We have fake Christians, unfortunately. And so, fake peace and safety. Because when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. The good news is there is a way of escape, and that's to give your life to Christ. Become a dedicated, committed follower of Jesus Christ. So here goes Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to describe his dream now. I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. 
I saw a dream which made me afraid. So Nebuchadnezzar's been here before, hasn't he? He had that dream about the giant image. And that troubled him because he didn't know what it was, what it meant. And so it's been said that the Holy Spirit's ministry is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. That seems to be my forte. Afflicting the comfortable. So it sounds like this dream has made him afraid. Somebody's trying to get his attention here. Rattle his cage, so to speak. And again, as I mentioned, this dream comes approximately 30 years after the dream in chapter 2. So Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel are now both about 50 years of age. Think of that. Therefore I issued a decree to bring in all of the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So we've also witnessed this scenario before in chapter 2 where he calls all the guys in and in spite of their past failures, Nebuchadnezzar still has these guys on the payroll thanks to Daniel. It was Daniel and his friends that prevented the slaughter of the Chaldean class. The, uh, the wise men, the, the magicians, the astronomers, the astrologers, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to kill them all. Well, they're still here. They're still on the payroll. He calls them in again. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, and I, Nebuchadnezzar, told them the dream. But they did not make known to me its interpretation. I remember in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar did not tell the wise men the content of his dream. He insisted that they tell him what the dream was, and then also give him the interpretation. They were not able to do it. It sounds like all this contentment and prosperity has softened him a little bit. He's not asking them to, to tell him the dream, but just tell him the meaning. But they did not make known to me its interpretation. So even with the added help of being told the content of the dream, they still couldn't come up with an interpretation. So with Daniel waiting in the wings, so to speak, they apparently weren't willing to risk giving a false interpretation. Remember before we learned the reason Nebuchadnezzar told them they had to give him the dream itself and the interpretation because then he would know if they were trying to fake it. If they couldn't tell him the dream, then they wouldn't be able to give him a true interpretation. So, but D Daniel's waiting in the wings and they know it, so... They're not going to give him a fake interpretation. So they just laid back. Verse 8, But as last Daniel came before me, and Nebuchadnezzar points out, His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. Key phrase here. In him is the spirit of the holy God, and I told the dream before him, saying, so we'll hear that in just a moment, but notice something here. At last, Daniel came before me. So Nebuchadnezzar waited until the failure of the other magicians, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, till they were unable. And then he calls in Daniel. Remember, Daniel was basically number two in the land, right next to King Nebuchadnezzar himself. And so as the highest appointed leader in the land, he probably had been busy with some important affairs of state. He may have even been somewhere far away because it was a vast empire. But finally, Daniel enters the picture. 
And, you know, we could draw an analogy here as well because it's interesting that as God, the representative of the one true God, he's the last one Nebuchadnezzar calls on. Just like so many people today who view calling on God as a last resort. Well, I've tried everything else. I guess I'll pray. You know what? We should pray first. You know, there, you know what the, that expression, shoot first and ask questions later? <laughs> well, we should pray first and ask questions later, right? Why, God? Why are you? Just start praying. Lord, give me wisdom. Give me insight. Give me guidance. Help me. But with Nebuchadnezzar, the representative of the one true God was the last guy to be called upon. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. So after beginning his decree with high and lofty language about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom, his dominion endures from generation to generation, he's still holding on to his old God. His true colors now show through. He's still a polytheistic idol worshiper. And have you ever known somebody like that? They'll, they'll push all the buttons, uh, bells and whistles, and they know how to speak Christianese, but they still have their crystals and their astrology and all this other stuff. It doesn't work that way. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, don't even bring them near me, get them out of my face, I don't want to see them. I am the Lord your God, the Lord our, our God is one. So Nebuchadnezzar really, even though he's singing the praises of Daniel's God, he still has some issues. And even this next part where it says, in him, Nebuchadnezzar referring to Daniel says, in him is the spirit of the holy God. Interestingly, in every other translation except for the New King James, even the Old King James, the phrase is not the holy God, it's holy gods, little h, little g. In him is the spirit of the small holy gods. I don't know why the New King James translated it this way, but virtually every other translation that I could come across, it's translated the holy gods, plural. So what Nebuchadnezzar is saying, in him is the spirit of the holy gods. You know, all those gods. Same spirit as in Daniel. Again, that confirms his status as really a non-believer. Nebuchadnezzar sees no difference between the spirit of the gods and the spirit of God. And so the new age is really not so new age after all, folks. It's been around for thousands of years. What did King Solomon say? There's nothing new under the sun. In him is the spirit of the holy gods, and I told the dream before him. So this time, it's a little easier for Daniel, too. He, he only has to give the interpretation of the dream. He doesn't have to tell Nebuchadnezzar the content because Nebuchadnezzar is willingly divulging that information. Verse 9. Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, Daniel, because I know that the spirit of the holy God, or again, the other translations say, I don't know, the New King James is trying to soften this thing or what? But it should be the holy gods. The spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no secret troubles you. 
Explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. So Belteshazzar, Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar refers to him as the chief of the magicians. And again, magician had a different meaning then than it does today. It has to do with the sciences, with astrology, astronomy, and so forth. Mathematics. That position, if you recall, was given to him years earlier. We read about it in chapter 2, verse 48. And remember the meaning of this title, magician, or chief of the magicians. Those who use the pen as in a writing instrument. Those learned in the sacred writings of the Babylonians. Textual scribes of the religious ritual. And how awesome that God put Daniel in this position, chief of those who used the pen, Daniel was able to inculcate into the Babylonian system the belief of Jehovah, the Lord God Almighty, the Creator. And think about this. Hundreds of years later, the wise men from the east came following the star that announced the birth of Christ. These guys were descendants of those that were trained under Daniel. And because of that, they knew what to look for. How cool is that? And again, God taking what the devil meant for evil, taking the children of Israel into captivity in Babylon, and used it for good. Over and over again. And then Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel, No secret troubles you, or no mystery is too difficult for you. Another thing to point out here, 30 years later, Daniel's witness and testimony still stands strong. He's been in the king's service for 30 years, and he still has that same solid testimony and reputation. Back in 227 and 28, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. And he goes on to interpret. Tell him the dream and interpret it. And so the king knows Daniel some 30 years later. He's still the guy. No secret troubles you. No mystery is too difficult for you. That's why I called on you, Daniel, because I know I can rely upon you. And again, Daniel points out repeatedly to the king, it's not me, it's God. Daniel could have easily used his position to his own advantage, his status, but he didn't. He was always humble, always giving God the credit, giving God the glory. And by the way, no matter what the current crop of fake historians want to tell you, our founding fathers did give the glory to God. And the reason that our country is no longer what it once was, the current leaders are not giving the glory to God. And when you don't give God the glory, things tend to go south. Daniel always gave God the glory, and no matter which king was in power, no matter what they tried to do to him, he always rose above. God was with him because he was humble before the Lord and faithful to God. So here we go. Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel, These were the visions of my head, 
while on my bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. Remember in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had the image, uh, dreamed of a great image, also very tall, of which he was a part. His second dream involves a tree, which as we will learn, not today because we're not going to get that far, but I'm giving you a preview of coming attractions. We will learn that this vision of the tree is all about him, nobody else. Verse 11, Nebuchadnezzar continues, The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of the earth. And so this is a, a description of the, the magnitude, which Daniel has already spoken of previously, the magnitude of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was good food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was massive. It was prosperous. We saw how he himself was contented and prosperous. Verse 13, I saw the visions of my head while on my bed. And so this was a dream of visions when you're awake. He has these in his sleep. And there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. This would be an angel from heaven, one of God's messengers. Now, the term watcher is used for angels, whether they be good angels or fallen angels, because the fallen angels who came down to the daughters of men in Genesis 6 are also known as the watchers. Our good friend L.A. Marzulli has a whole series called The Watchers, all about some of the demonic angelic activity taking place in our world today but there was a watcher a holy one coming down from heaven he cried aloud and said thus chop down the tree and cut off its branches strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches and again I don't want to jump ahead of Daniel's interpretation which we'll look at next week but it's pretty obvious that uh, Nebuchadnezzar is headed for a downfall. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. And as you probably know, that literally does happen to Nebuchadnezzar. He loses his mind, and he winds up out in the pasture on his hands and knees, eating grass with the cows. Jumping ahead, but it's just too much fun to not talk about. At, let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. So I think it's becoming increasingly obvious here that the tree is the symbol of a person, Nebuchadnezzar, as a matter of fact. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. Whoever the man in this dream is, and we know who it is, the message of the angel is not a good one. Seems like Nebuchadnezzar has good reason to be terrified. But interestingly here, notice, let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast. I read an interesting thing recently, and it had to do with the fact that the heart in our studies in Matthew, 
we went over this again and again and again, how there's a direct connection between the heart and the mind. Where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. You know? Listen to this. There's one article. I'm just going to read you just the tiniest bit. Thinking from the heart. Now, this is secular, scientific information, not from Christian sources. Thinking from the heart. Heart-brain science. The heart plays an important role in creating emotional experience and accessing intuition. The heart is in a constant two-way dialogue with the brain. Now, I've heard in the past people have said, well, you know, it just depends on which culture you're in. In some cultures, it's not the heart, it's the liver. You ever heard that one? They say it's just a cultural thing. In our culture, we talk about the heart. In some cultures, it's the liver. No, 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 no. The Bible speaks over and over again about the connection between your heart and your mind. In fact, we've often, in evangelistic circles, if you will, those who've been involved in evangelism, preaching the gospel to win the lost, we've often said that in order for conversion to take place, the knowledge about God needs to be transferred from your brain to your heart. You, you not only need a head knowledge of God, you need a heart knowledge. The heart is in a constant two-way dialogue with the brain. Isn't that interesting? And here's another article, Can Your Heart Think for Itself? Question mark. It's from a, a website called organicauthority.com. This was published in October of 2018. The results indicate that the body can respond to an emotional stimulus prior to experiencing the future stimulus. In other words, the heart responds to emotional information before the brain can even perceive it. Interesting stuff. And here we read that this vision, the angel is saying... Let this tree, his, it's a person, it's a him, let his heart or mind be changed from that of a man. In fact, that's what some translations say, mind. New King James says heart, some translations say mind because there's a direct connection. Let his heart or his mind be changed from that of a man. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart, listen to this is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And Jeremiah goes on to talk about the fact that God alone truly knows our hearts and he's the one who can transform our hearts and change our hearts. It's interesting though, it says the heart is deceitful above all things. Luke 6.45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That verse always convicts me instantly. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And here's Nebuchadnezzar about to come under a curse, if you will, because of his idolatry and his fake Judaism and his heart will be changed or his mind will be changed from that of a man. 
to that of a beast. And let seven times pass over him, or it could be translated seven periods of time. And we will see here, and in Daniel's prophecy in chapter 9, Daniel's 70 weeks, that this is a period of seven years, seven times. Let seven times pass over him, seven years. And so we're reminded again that in biblical numerology, seven is the number of perfection, completion, or fulfillment. And so the seven years that under which Nebuchadnezzar will be cursed to crawl along the ground like a cow and eat grass, that will be the completion or fulfillment of his chastening by God. Verse 17. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. So in other words, this decision is by decree of the watchers, the sentence by the word of the holy ones. It's a done deal. It will absolutely happen. God has declared it through his messengers. He has decreed it. And certainly Nebuchadnezzar would understand this because as the king, his decrees were also irrevocable, remember? He put himself in a real tight spot, first with the Chaldeans, because he said, if you can't tell me the dream and then interpret the dream, I'm going to slice you all to pieces and turn your homes into ashes. And that would include killing their family members as well. And only because Daniel came forward, gave the dream, gave the interpretation, all those people were spared. But Nebuchadnezzar had made a decree and he couldn't go back on it. Same thing when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace. He really liked them. They were high up in the land, under, right under Daniel. But he made that decree that anyone who would not bow before the image would be thrown into the fiery furnace. And so he had to do it. And once again, God showed himself to be superior in every way. This decision is by the decree of the watchers being the messengers of God in order that the living may know. Doesn't do the dead much good at this point. You either knew God was in charge or you didn't. But in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. Thirty years God had sent this message to Nebuchadnezzar. Only the first time it was from the positive side of the coin. Daniel 2.47, the king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. And in that first dream where Daniel gave the interpretation, he told Nebuchadnezzar, Hey, you're the man. You're the king of kings. God has put you where you are. So that first dream was coming from the positive viewpoint, but now we're coming from the negative because Nebuchadnezzar had 30 years to get right with God and he hadn't done it. We're told that he gives this power, he gives it to whomever he will. That was also previously disclosed to Nebuchadnezzar by Daniel in a more positive way. Daniel 2, 38. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. 
you are this head of gold, which resulted in him getting a big head. He gives it to whomever he will, and he sets over it the lowest of men. Isn't that interesting? Remember when the people insisted that Samuel give them a king. Up to that point, Israel was a theocracy. They had no king like the other countries. They were ruled over by God. And at the time of Samuel, he was God's representative to the people. But they said, boy, this is so typical of human beings, isn't it? We want a king like everybody else. And so the people decided it should be Saul because he was tall, good-looking apparently. He was head and shoulders above every man in the land. He was really tall. They thought, oh, surely that's got to be the guy. He looks like a king. But here it says that God sets the kingdoms of the earth the lowest of men, which means the most humble. God's prerequisite for power, authority, and leadership. Boy, have we gotten off track today. It's humility. God's prerequisite is humility. And today, those who are truly humble get run over, roughshod, beaten down, knocked back. Psalms 18.27. I think Nebuchadnezzar is in trouble, don't you? Psalms 18.27. You will save the humble people, but will bring down haughty looks. Luke 1.52, he, God, has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Coming soon to a planet near you. All the prideful, arrogant, pompous, haughty rulers will be brought down. And the humble Lord Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of this world. Verse 18, this is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. No wonder he's scared. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. Even if they could, they'd probably be scared to tell him. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. That's from the NIV again. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. And although Nebuchadnezzar claims not to understand the meaning of the dream, his fearfulness comes, I think, it comes from the fact that deep down inside, he has the feeling that it's about him and it isn't good. When God's trying to get our attention, the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts, but sometimes we don't want to hear that, right? We don't want to hear what God has to say. And so we'll search for some so-called godly person who will tell us what we want to hear. Paul warned about that in the last days. The time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine, but will gather to themselves teaching. Teachers having itching ears, they'll gather to themselves teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. And if that's Nebuchadnezzar's M.O. here, his modus operandi he just barked up the wrong tree when he called Daniel in because he's not going to hear what he wants to hear in fact the title of this message is this is part one of from an oak to a joke 
Let's stand. Whereas the world would tell us, you know, you've got to really stand up for yourself. You've got to be assertive, aggressive. You've got to, you know, look out for number one and all that. God teaches just the opposite. We saw how Daniel and his associates humbled themselves and they were obedient to the king unless the king told them to do something that violated their relationship with God. That's where they drew the line and that's where we need to draw the line. But we need to operate in humility. And then God, the Bible says he will raise us up in due time according to his will, his plan, his purpose. And you know, history is strewn with the evidence of what happens to people when they elevate themselves. It doesn't usually turn out well. And so, but even as believers, sometimes we will seek to elevate ourselves and it ultimately leads to trouble. Better to humble ourselves, wait upon the Lord, let him raise us up in his time, in his way, and then it'll be a good thing. We see Daniel 30 years later, he's still going strong. He's still in the groove. He still has that reputation. And so once again, he's called upon to help the king. But this message that he's going to deliver is not going to be particularly comfortable. Let's bow our heads before the Lord. If you have a prayer request, please raise your hand. We'd like to pray for you this morning. Okay, I see all those hands. God sees them. Father, I lift each one up to you here today. Lord, you know what's on every heart, every mind. We talked about how the heart and the mind are connected. So, Lord, I pray for hearts here today. Lord, we can become heart sick, heart weary. Actually, we learned today how the heart does uh, have to do with emotions, with feelings, with impressions. And, Lord, sometimes we do get hurt. Our hearts hurt. I pray for anyone here today with a hurting heart. But from whatever it might be, whether it's related to an illness, a loss or a damaged relationship, Lord, just weariness from the things of this world, Lord, we ask that you'd bring healing, comfort, strength, restoration today for heart, hearts that have been damaged, hard hearts that are hurting. Just pour out your spirit, Father, and heal our hearts. You said you came to heal the brokenhearted. Here we are. We ask you to heal us in Jesus' name. We pray for those with illnesses that you bring healing, Lord. We really need that ministry of your Holy Spirit to be poured out upon those struggling with various afflictions, Lord, whether it's afflictions of the eyes, whether it's cancer, whether it's leukemia, whether it's heart disease, lung disease. Lord God, you made us. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are our creator. You're our designer and our creator, and you know how to fix us. We pray for healing to be poured out upon your people in Jesus' name. And also not only physically, Lord, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually. We need your healing on every level. And we thank you that you said you would give it to us, that you'd heal the brokenhearted. Thank you, God. Bring recovery of sight to the blind. Lord, we thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. Help us to receive those things, Lord. Sometimes you're never the problem, Lord. If there's a problem, it's with us. So help us to open ourselves up to receive all that you have for us, Lord. Not to hold back, 
not to doubt. Lord, you said the double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways and not will receive anything from you. Help us to be single-minded, firmly set upon you, Lord, seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. And you promised that if we do that, you'd add all things unto us. Lord, I pray for provision for those struggling economically, for jobs, for income, for provision. And Lord, we learned today that it's important to be content wherever we are, whatever we have, to be thankful and to trust you as our provider. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We ask for healing of broken marriages, broken relationships. We learn that the enemy wants to destroy our families, our friendships. We ask you to stand against him and stand on our behalf and bring healing and restoration. We thank you and we praise you for the great, wonderful stories of your Bible, the life and the ministry of Daniel, which is touching our hearts week by week. Thank you, God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.